in talking to people, I always get this. You know, I'm I'm afraid that there's some uh, something about God that's uh, I don't know about. I'm I'm frightened of. Uh, he scares me. Hey, read the Gospels. <laughs> that's who God is. Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are pressing on in our new series on the Gospel of John. Here, Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers will discuss Jesus as the Word. This is a prominent theme in John's gospel, and here the guys will be talking about what Jesus as the word means, as well as discussing whether or not John is borrowing from pagan sources here. This episode is a great example not just of reading the Bible imaginatively, but also taking the Bible seriously on its own terms as our authority. Before we get into the episode, we wanted to let you know about a couple of events we have coming up. This month on September 19th, we will be in Moscow, Idaho at Trinity Reformed Church with a look at the book of Revelation. Alistair Roberts will also be in California on September 28th and 29th, doing a series of talks on a theology of the sexes. And later in the year, on December 6th and 7th, we will be in Fort Worth with a regional course on liturgical worship. For more information on those events coming up, I have links down there in the show notes for you. With that, we hope that you enjoy and are encouraged by this episode, and we want to thank you for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers discussing Jesus, the Word. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, president of the Theopolis Institute, and I'm here today with Alastair Roberts, who is joining us from England, and also uh, joined by Jeff Myers, pastor at Providence Reformed Presbyterian Church in St. Louis. And uh, Jeff is joining us for the, the current series of episodes in our podcast. Between now and the end of the calendar year, we're going to be mainly focusing on the Gospels. First of all, the Gospel of John will spend a couple of months looking at uh, the, especially the first half of the Gospel of John and the signs that Jesus performs in the first half of John's Gospel. Uh, and then uh, we're going to spend Advent and into the Christmas season talking about the Lucan account of Jesus' conception and birth. Brian Motes is here as always. Happy to have him along. Welcome, Jeff, again uh, as a guest. Glad you're able to join us. And uh, it's really a uh, I think you enhance our conversation a great deal, given given your experience as a as a preacher on the Gospels over the, over many years. Great to be here. In the first episode in uh, in this series, we spent a good bit of time talking about John's place in the sequence of the four Gospels. Irenaeus said that there are four Gospels because there are four winds of heaven and four faces of the cherubim and four points on the compass. Therefore, of course, there must be four Gospels. Many people mock Irenaeus for statements like that, but um, here at Theopolis, we think he's right on target. There are four Gospels because there are four phases of Old Testament history, and those are related to four offices or four phases of uh, maturation that we see throughout the Old Testament. Uh, they are related to the four faces of the cherubim. So this fourfold portrait of Jesus is giving us a full-scale portrait of Jesus as the uh, as the true cherub, as the true guardian of God's throne, the priestly ox, the royal lion, the eagle of prophecy, and in John's gospel, the man. 
We also talked about uh, the distinctiveness of John's gospel and how John's gospel differs from the other four gospels, uh, other three gospels, how it presents Jesus and his work differently. And we talked a bit at the end of the last episode about John's relationship to the apocalypse, the, the visions that John receives and records in the last book of the Bible and how, the, how John's gospel works together with that uh, last book. What we want to do in this episode is focus on John's distinctive presentation of Jesus. And we, we get a distinctive presentation of Jesus right at the beginning of John's gospel. Matthew begins with a genealogy. And so we have Jesus placed in the context of a genealogy that begins with Abraham and goes through the Davidic house and culminates with, with Jesus as the descendant of Abraham and the descendant of David. Uh, Mark begins with an announcement, this is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And immediately, that's Mark's favorite word, immediately we are into the midst of the action and immediately Jesus is doing this and that. Uh, Luke begins with two chapters of nativity, uh, of the nativity story. After a short introduction, Luke introduces himself and his, uh, speaks directly to his uh, the, uh, Theophilus uh, who, who, to whom he's addressing his gospel. Uh, so those are, the, those are the opening of the other gospel. In John's gospel, we have this very distinctive opening with the phrase, in the beginning, which alludes back to Genesis 1, 1, the very beginning of the Bible, and then this announcement that Jesus is the Word, that there's a Word that was in the beginning both toward God and also was God. This Word is the created creative Word that now has come in the flesh and take, taken his place among us and pitched his tent among us. So right from the first verses of John's Gospel, we have a unique presentation of who Jesus is as the self-disclosure and self-expression of God, who is himself God. Now that self-expression and that self-disclosure has taken flesh and is showing the glory of God in the midst of our fleshly world. John's Gospel also has a symmetry between uh, an initial prologue and a concluding epilogue. Um, Richard Borkham has observed that the prologue has 496 syllables, whereas the epilogue has 496 words in chapter 21. So it's a very carefully structured literary um, work. And the introduction here presents us with what goes before and provides the larger context for all that takes place within the gospel, whereas the other gospels also have allusions back to Genesis um, in different ways at the begin at the outset of their gospels. Um, John is the one that takes it back even further to speak about the word himself who has become flesh. And then at the very end, what you're having is the epilogue that refers to the ministry of the church following um, the life and death of Christ and resurrection of Christ. And so these two parts of the gospel that frame the rest of the text are very important, integral parts that seen in counterbalance to each other help us to appreciate a broader frame within which the whole of the gospel is operating. You might want to just say something, Peter, that the early church uh, didn't really connect the basis of the cherubim with the Gospels like we do. I think uh, the eagle is associated with John in uh, patristic writers, if I'm not mistaken. And so we've refined that a bit, and I think appreciating more the flow of uh, Israelite history and see that John is the face of the man. 
because of the emphasis in John on Jesus as a new Adam um, and a new man and a new son. Uh, the Word of God is also the Son of God who reveals the Father. Does anyone anymore think that John is somehow making an overture to the Hellenistic uh, world, to uh, Greek philosophy, by using the word logos here in the prologue? Oh, I'm I'm sure many many people do, Jeff. <laughs> and I, I guess my my answer to that would be: it seems pretty clear that John is working within the uh, within the uh, thought world, as it were, of Genesis one. In the beginning is the word. Uh, it's not just the fact that he speaks of the word of God as with the phrase in the beginning. He also talks about life being in the word and the life being the light of men. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. Darkness does not comprehend it. So you're starting to run through the days of creation. And then uh, if you follow that through uh, the rest of, uh, of John 1, then you see that there are a series of days. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming. Verse 35, the next day John was standing with two of the disciples. Verse 43, the next day he purposed to go forth to Galilee. Chapter 2 begins, and on the third day there was a wedding at Cana. So there seems to be a, there's a sequence of days, different ways of counting that that up. Uh, and, you know, some ways of counting, you get seven days uh, that and the uh, wedding at Cana is taking place on a Sabbath, or it's the eighth day, it's the day after the Sabbath. So I think that uh, all those are indications that John is working within the thought world of Genesis. I think that does John know that he's using a word that's that has uh, philosophical resonance for Greek intellectuals? Uh, I don't know if John knows that or not. I, I, there's, I guess I wouldn't think that's impossible for John to know that. And I think it's you know providentially the Spirit knows that. <laughs> Uh, and and the, the spirit who's inspiring John is directing John to use terminology uh, and to speak in ways that, while working within the framework of Genesis and the creation account, also have this have this kind of um, interaction with or resonance to or uh, in some ways a challenge to the philosophical idea of a logos. I mean, I, I think that um, if we wanted to use John 1 and put it kind of juxtapose it to uh, ancient conceptions of the Logos, I think we, we, would, we would end up going in very different directions. They, they end up going in very different directions. But I, th I think providentially, it's in Greek. Um, the Gospels are put out in a, in a Greek world. They, the Gospels encounter intellectuals. I think providentially, God intends it to be a word spoken to those who believe in a Logos, who is an organizing or metaphysical principle of the world. And now he's yeah. introducing. It's it's like it's like Acts seventeen. Now John is introducing that logos yeah. which they uh, have known of uh, ignorantly. Yeah, it's certainly going to be a challenge to them. But I'm not sure that he has them in mind. Uh, and one of the things I always come back to with this when people uh, raise this to me, I said, look, if John was trying to give an apologetic to the Greeks uh, and make some kind of bridge to them about the Lagos as some, the rational principle or whatever it might be in whoever is talking about the Lagos in, in Greek philosophy. If he was trying to do that, it ends right there. I mean, it, there's nothing else in the book of John that deals with Greek philosophy. He goes immediately to the temple and to the Sabbath and Passovers and tabernacles and feasts and 
and all the things uh, that characterize um, Judaism. Uh, there's nothing in there about Greek philosophy or trying to, you know, create some bridge over to Greek philosophy. It's all grounded in the Hebrew scriptures. So it almost, um, and I think this is accurate. I, I know that the apologists and their uh, Lagos theology were mistaken, but in many ways, uh, when they were dealing with this, they at least tried to go back to the Old Testament, to Proverbs, to Psalm 33. Uh, they're almost appears to be a personification of the word in the Hebrew scriptures, which then actually takes on flesh uh, with Jesus. So you, you always read this, the word of God came to Abraham or the word of God came to whatever prophet. And the word ha takes on these personal characteristics. Uh, for example, in Psalm 33, the word of Yahweh is upright or the word of Yahweh by the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Um, that seems to be the best context for understanding John 1, not uh, Greek philosophical um, speculation. Mm -hmm. uh, just to say a word in support of one point, one point you're making, it's about the Jewishness of John's gospel. That was, I had that in mind in the last episode when we talked about the, uh, the contested character of John's gospel and how often we have lengthy disputes between Jesus and the Jews. And they are all, as you said, they're all about uh, Jewish practices and Jewish customs. That's, um, it's, not like, it's not like John has taken us out of that Jewish setting in any way. And if, if anything, there's a, there's a more intense clash between Jesus and the Jews in John's gospel than elsewhere. It's important to notice that there are... Um, developments in the concept of logos, wisdom, and those other terms have a prehistory before John. It's not just one that's found in um, sources like Heraclitus and the other Stoics. There is the use of it within um, Philo, which some have argued is very much taken from Heraclitus and the Stoics, but others have argued that it's a development of Jewish concepts that gives them a particular um, stoic coloring. I think there's other um, ways in which in more Jewish sources you'll see concepts of wisdom, um, whether in Sirach or the Book of Wisdom. Um, these concepts are already developed, whether as personifications or at certain points, a sort of hypostatization of um, the concept of God's word or God's wisdom. And those concepts are not just um, of some universal law or principle um, which tends in a more um, pantheistic or panentheistic direction as you might find in the Stoics but it's the concept of the Torah or it's some concept of wisdom as um, creating alongside God that we might find in somewhere like Proverbs 8 and so the concepts that you find within Judaism and the concepts that you'd find within the Stoics have a certain degree of similarity to each other but they have different sources and there can be points where they meet up and someone tries to synthesize them to some degree but that doesn't mean that they derive from um, the Stoics necessarily rather there is a significant history of the development of these concepts within the context of Judaism even before John's gospel comes along things that are grounded within the Old Testament and the body of material 
that reflects upon that. And what John's doing at this point, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I believe, is taking a concept that is deeply charged with many of these um, reflections on personifications of the law of God, upon the wor word of God, the wisdom of God, and that as a personal, as a at least a quasi-personal agent that enacts God's will within the world that is seen as divine, but yet distinguished in some sense, sort of distinction within God. Um, and he's connecting that with his incarnational theology in a way that both takes on board some of that existing framework, but also radically transforms it. And when you think about the relationship between what John's saying and some of the Stoic concepts, there are similarities, but there are also very significant differences. John's um, logos is a personal logos. It's not just uh, a principle, nor is it just a personification. It's a specific person. There's also an opposition between the Logos and the world, whereas the Stoic Logos is very much a principle of creation. Now, there's a way in which we can speak about Christ as that, the one who upholds the world, who gives it its consistency, all of that. But John's Gospel presents Christ in opposition to the world in a way that would push back against many of the notions that would develop around the Stoic Logos. So it's important to recognize the background, but also to see how John is taking a concept that is not merely derived from um, pagan sources, is not merely taking on board those notions from pagan sources, but it's a very Jewish concept that has been around for a while, and he's transforming that with a theology of incarnation and breaking open the concept. A couple of other uh, angles on that. One would be that, I mean, where does the idea that Logos is the organizing principle of the cosmos come from? Is that some kind of distortion of a uh, originally revealed claim about the creation coming from the word of God? So um, did Plato read Moses? Did Heraclitus read Moses and uh, draw the concept? So I think that, that has to be factored in the, a possibility that there's some influence from scripture on the way that philosophers are thinking. And I think, again, to uh, support, uh, in support of what, what you were saying, Alistair, this is, a, this is a personal logos, and it's not just an organizing principle from kind of from the outside, or an organizing principle that is distancing the high God from the creation. The word that is the, uh, the word that makes the world, the world by whom all things come into being, is himself identified with God, uh, that that uh, the whole point of having a logos in at least in certain systems is to create a buffer between the high god who can't contaminate himself with contact with some kind of lower uh, lower creation lower existence or lower being. Uh, but this word is not this uh, is not the buffer between God and the world, but the means by which God has contact with the world. And then the incarnation is even more. Uh, One fourteen is even more. Uh, you know, kind of radically offensive to any notion that the word is kind of a buffer between God and uh, creation because the word who is God, who is himself God, now takes flesh. And then uh, that word who takes flesh begins to speak as word from within the flesh. He speaks God's words. He speaks the Father's words to Israel 
um, but from within, from but as a human having taken flesh. I, I want to, Jeff. I want to go back to a comment you made, which I think is an interesting one, uh, both in regard to this question that we've been discussing, and just an uh, interesting question about what John is up to. He opens with this, to use the modern terminology, this high Christology, this Christology from above. Uh, where Jesus is identified as the eternal self-expression or word of the Father. But then, as you said, he seems to drop it. So, uh, why? What's up with that? Is that the case, or can we see threads of this prologue running all the way through? Mm-hmm. Thoughts on why he would introduce and, and then seem to abandon this this emphasis? Well, I I didn't mean that he drops it so much as... If it's about the Greek Lagos, then that's dropped. There's never any more discussion of Greek, the Greek system or Greek uh, philosophy. But um, it seems to me that that what John is, why John has this prologue is to give us um, a, a proleptic kind of sequence of what he's going to be what Jesus is going to be doing in his life. So the word of God is the expression, as you saw, the self-expression, the personal, eternal self-expression of God. That then, uh, uh, John doesn't use the language of image here, but it's pretty clear that the word is the son, and the son is the image of the father, back to like Genesis 5, 3 kind of talk. And that word who becomes flesh is the son of the father. And now we know, we see the father uh, whom we've never seen before, but now all of a sudden we see him, we discern him, we can understand who he is. Uh, And that, of course, then is developed all through the uh, gospel. But especially uh, this, this, if there's kind of three sections to the prologue, verses 1 through 5, and the verses 6 through 13. Um, verses 14 through 18 correspond to the end of the gospel, the book of glory, where, as you said, I think it was in this podcast, it might have been in the previous one, Jesus reveals his glory and the glory of the Father on the cross. And notice that this last section here has to do with the glory and the grace and truth that are revealed on the cross uh, by Jesus, so I'm, I'm I, I think it was, and I don't have. I should have grabbed this off my shelf. Thomas Brody in his uh, commentary on the Gospel of John is back in the early '90s, who called attention to this threefold structure of the prologue and how then that is uh, projected, or how that. Uh, is the prequel for the rest of the gospel. And it particularly makes sense to me with 14 through 18 in this emphasis on glory. Yeah, it makes sense to me in six in verses 6 through 13 too, because you have, I'm thinking of verse 10 and following particularly, he was in yeah. the world, the world was made through him, the world did not know him. He yeah. came to his own and those who were not his own, uh, were his own, did not receive him. So you have the, the Jewish rejection of Jesus. And then, but as many as did receive him, become children of God. So, the, the, yeah, there's a, that seems to be a, uh, anticip- anticipating the section of John's gospel where Jesus is constantly in conflict with those who are his own, mm-hmm. who do not receive him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe another thing that we see within this section is by 
placing everything within the context of the beginning and the introduction to um, the word as the one who was involved in the original creation, there is a theological framework presented for understanding who the word is. I think we find this also in other places within the New Testament, for instance, in Colossians 1, where there is a sort of theological, a subtle theological reflection upon the text of Genesis 1 that helps us to see Christ within that text. And so the word is not merely um, this concept of wisdom um, in a more generic theological sense, but it's thinking about what it means to have, for instance, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters and God saying, um, what is God's word doing in that context? And it helps us to read um, Genesis 1 in a way that sees Christ within it. I think in Colossians 1, you see a similar thing with a reflection upon the term in the beginning itself, that the Paul takes that term beginning and explores or Rashith and thinks about different aspects of that. So Christ, um, he talks about Christ as the image, and then he's the firstborn. That's one aspect of the term Rashid. And then he's supreme. He's the head, and he's the beginning. And as he unpacks that term, he's helping you to read the text of Genesis 1 and to see Christ as an agent within that, and every single part of the creation as being something that flows through Christ, God creates through his Son and his Spirit. And then when you read the rest of the Gospel, that helps you to recognise themes of new creation. And we've, I think, already commented upon the way that you see creation days playing out in um, chapters 1 and 2 of um, John, where there's a series of days that line up. And as you reflect upon those, they can be mapped on in various ways, in, in various degrees of strength onto the original creation days, which alerts you to what is taking place through the ministry of Christ. Christ is the one who established, through whom the original creation was established. Um, God spoke that creation into existence, and the means by which he spoke that creation into existence was his word. And now there is a new word being spoken. There is a new light being brought into the darkness and something new is happening and that is an event of new creation that culminates in resurrection. And going back to something you, you had said, Jeff, that I think uh, fits with what Alistair was just saying at the end there. Um, the prologue, uh, as far as I can see here, the prologue, the prologue's last reference to Jesus as word is in verse 14. The word becomes flesh and tabernacles among us and then we behold his glory. So there's a transition in the terminology at least from the word who now enters into flesh and the word in flesh is now a a revelation of the glory and then glory takes over as you said particularly in the latter part of the gospel takes over as a as a major motif um so it's the maybe maybe that's one of the one of the key points for figuring out you know what happens to this opening this opening announcement now God has, God has spoken his word in flesh. Uh, what happens to that theme is that it's kind of translated into glory when the word is uh, when the word comes in and uh, dwells in us, dwells among us and tabernacles in our in our human humanity. What do we make of um, verse 18 and the focus on seeing God? Um, there seems to be 
There seems to be a, uh, a thread that runs through the gospel according to St. John about this. You know, Greeks come, I think it's in chapter 5, to see, trying to see Jesus. Philip, in the end, asked to see the Father and it would be enough for him. And Jesus said, dude, man, you've seen me. What else do you need? Um, and um, and I haven't really traced this through, but it's it's a rather interesting kind of uh, metaphor, if you will, because hearing the word is one thing, seeing Jesus is something else entirely. Either of you thought about that? I put some thought into it. That I think that that statement in verse 18 sets up something that runs through the whole gospel. You cited the passages that I would cite. Um, I think you actually have it beginning, that, that, um, that setup begins in verse 14 where the Word becomes flesh and tabernacles among us and the glory is visible. We behold the glory. That's, that's new because when the, when the glory came in a tent and tabernacle in a tent, it was not visible, or at least it, it was visible on the mountain and then it comes into the, the most holy mm. place and it's, it's, it's hidden, hidden in the inner sanctuary. But now that the Word has become flesh, we see the glory. Now that the Word has become flesh, God has shown Himself. So I think that the, that sets up for the, I don't think, verse 18 is not, John doesn't use it as a kind of metaphysical principle of invisibility. That's not what he's right. saying. He's saying, as he says about Moses, the law comes through Moses, grace and truth are realized through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. Uh, that was the case before God showed himself and he shows himself in Jesus. And so now those who see Jesus do see God. Those who see Jesus do see the glory of God, which was hidden away in the temple and the tabernacle, so I think yeah, I think that's I think that's setting up the the theme of God unveiling Himself that runs through John and I, you know I think also runs through uh, the book of Revelation as well that that uh, uh, the unveiling of Jesus it, the unveiling of God in Jesus doesn't just occur through the life of Jesus but occurs in the life of the early church. So do I remember right? Um, I think I do that Jim Jordan. Uh, encouraged us at one point, maybe in some essay, to think about the word lagos, of course, being translation of devar in Hebrew and connected to devir, uh, and being the holy of holies. So that um, if you read this in terms of the holy of holies, then what was hidden in the tabernacle and in the temple, the glory of God, is now been revealed and is seen as uh, the sun uh, becomes the tabernacle and the temple. But, you know, it's interesting, this, there, there are no divisions of um, holy and most holy in the sun. There's just the sun. There's, you just, there's just the glory. You just see, you see what you see. Right. It's very possible that Jim wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> he did. It's a Biblical Horizons essay. It's available online. Mm. Yeah, and that, and that makes sense to me that... Um, uh, that I'd see that as kind of a, a a a kind of hidden layer of the whole thing. As the more straightforward thing is the, I think the creative word that is the personal agent by which the Father creates the world, along with the Spirit, that becomes flesh. Uh, but I think yeah, the, the, given the given the uh, uh, the temple, the the use of the word debir to describe the inner sanctuary of the temple, I think that would be another another layer of the of the prologue. 
And I think there's also a way in which John is playing off the background of Sinai here. So he talked in the previous verse about the law being given through Moses, grace and truth coming through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ throughout John's gospel is the true. Um, he's the true vine. He's the um, true shepherd. He's the one who brings in the true worshippers. And here I think he's bringing out another aspect of it, that Moses was given the 10 words. Um, Christ is the one through whom the 10 words of creation itself, um, Christ is those 10 words, as it were, um, the creative word um, made flesh. And Moses gives some reflection or some manifestation of that on stone, but Christ is the one who brings the reality. Moses saw the glory of God upon the mountain and he saw the back of God. As we read through John's gospel, he plays upon a number of those different narratives of um, theophany that we find within the Old Testament. So whether that's Jacob's ladder, hereafter you'll see heavens opened and angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man as Christ talks to Nathaniel. Um, Abraham rejoiced to see my day um, in chapter 8 or um, chapter 12. This Isaiah declared when he saw his glory, the glory by implication being the glory of Christ. And in each one of those occasions, John is drawing our attention back to an Old Testament appearance of some aspect of the glory of God that was veiled to an extent. When you read all these different accounts, what you see is there's some degree of veiling of the true identity. It's as if the glory of God coming incognito. And now, as Christ becomes flesh, we see um, God in a new way. We recognize God's presence that was seen in these theophanies, glorious theophanies in the past, more in person, um, connected with a particular figure, Jesus of Nazareth. And that, I think, is a theme that pervades the gospel as we work through it. Yeah, and I think that one of the one of the dimensions of that is a particular accent that John gives to Aletheia to truth. He's not operating with. It's not primarily a correspondence idea of truth, that Jesus is saying things that actually are correspond to what is the case, or Jesus corresponds to some reality. Truth has an eschatological inflection within John's gospel. So, you know, those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. That means they have to worship in accord with the realities that have now come in Jesus, this uh, eschatological revelation of eternal life, this eschatological relation, uh, uh, revelation of glory, those who worship God must worship him in terms of those realities that are now uh, realized in Christ. And that eschatological theme is also something that I think we see in both Revelation and in John's Gospel. The end is something that is the culmination and the completion of all those things at the beginning. And so the beginning returns at the end. So the glory with which that Christ had at the beginning is going to be that which the church is glorified with at the end. And I think um, by introducing those themes at the very outset, um, John is preparing us for the way in which all these creation themes return at the very end of his work, particularly in Revelation, but in the culmination. Maybe just to close with something a little more sermonic and uh this prologue especially uh verse 14 and 18 especially as it connects with uh, the glorification of jesus on the cross 
this is really important, I think, for modern people, because modern people tend to think that there's some kind of dark dimension to God, that, that there's something about God that um, is impenetrable and scary, and um, that God is just a power God who pounds his nails and we're his nails. And yet, here we see that there, if you see God, if you see Jesus, you see God. If you know uh, of Jesus' life, you know the life of God. Uh, and there's nothing dark and sinister behind that. Quite the contrary, um, it's quite gracious and loving and caring and pretty astonishing. Um, so uh, I've, I've always pointed people, I, I, you know, in, in talking to people, I always get this, you know, I'm, I'm afraid that there's some, uh, something about God that's, uh, I don't know about, I'm, I'm frightened of, uh, he scares me. Hey, read the gospels. <laughs> that's who God is. <laughs> Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.